everyone, and welcome to the Categorically Romance podcast. My name is Sarah. And I'm Bree. And joining us today on the podcast, we have special guest author Laurel Greer. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Can you share with us how your 2021 is going and how you've been taking care of yourself this year? Yeah, so thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting to be able to do this. I I love your podcast. It feels like sitting down at a conference table with people and talking and which is something that's really been missing from our 2020 and 2021. So having the opportunity to even just virtually connect is is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I when it comes to my 2021, it's been it's been busy. It's been good busy. I try to I really don't like to, you know, dive into toxic positivity whatsoever. Obviously, it's been a very difficult year in a lot of ways, but I do feel that I've been fortunate in a lot of ways too. Uh, living in Canada has has been beneficial, absolutely. And so I've been just trying to focus on my family and my kids, and I've had three releases. Um, I should definitely put my phone down more. <laughs> Um, uh, same same yeah it's been so easy to to need a a quick stress release and just flip through instagram you know but um just trying to safely spend time with family and friends and going on summer holidays helped we went to Mm. uh the interior of british columbia which was great and my family has a cabin that was not it's there's no internet there and so it was a we really unplugged for a couple of weeks so that was probably the best way to to try and take care of myself oh, I this love year. that can mm-hmm. I just tell you that you living in Canada saved me this month really <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, message. She's, like, she's Canadian I'm like really so <laughs> yes so Sarah and I have a book club with one of our best friends and every month we just pick like a one word theme mm-hmm. and then each of us picks our own book that goes with that theme. And then at the mm-hmm. end of the month, we come together and talk about it. And so since Sarah lives in Toronto, she did Canadian since Canadian Thanksgiving is happening. Yeah, of course. And I had a book and just me knowing me and my crazy TBR, I was like, it's not on audio. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to this almost 500 page book. And so I started reading your book and I got to like the I don't know, the dear reader or something. And I was like, Sarah, Laurel Greer is Canadian. (laughs) I was like, I just stumbled upon a Canadian author. (laughs) So thank you for giving me my book club pick. Thank you for being Canadian, essentially. (laughs) Which is the most Canadian thing I think you could possibly say. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, So let's kick things off with a few icebreakers. Mm -hmm. On your website, you mentioned that one of the ways you fill your creative well is by falling down Pinterest rabbit holes. Been there, done that. What's the last rabbit hole you fell down? It was actually yesterday. I was filling out my art fact sheet for Harlequin, which they use to make covers and back cover copy and things. And I like to, whenever I have an animal in the book, I like to include a a picture and uh, a description of the animal in hopes that the animal will make it onto the cover. So I have this puppy and it's a German wire-haired pointer. Mm. And so I started looking at German wire-haired pointer puppies and it's very soothing. So. If you came with a warning label, what would it say? If cranky, fill with tea and carbohydrates. Yes. <laughs> I actually asked my husband about that one and he's like, oh. And then he says, do I get royalties for this? <laughs> <laughs> What's one of the best purchases you treated yourself to this year? 
I was thinking something along the lines of my planner stickers, which my collection mm. is ridiculous by now. And they, they actually, I find them really motivating and helpful. But then I realized that uh, one is actually, I didn't buy it for myself, but I asked for it for Christmas last year, which is noise canceling headphones. Mm, and yes. they've been incredible. I just love how many authors are like, y'all are really into planners and stickers. And I'm yes. like, I need to get into planning. What is wrong with me? <laughs> I guess I feel like I don't have anything to plan. Great. We're already not writing the books. We don't need anything else to not <laughs> write the books. give me anything else to write. But I just yeah. love the stickers and the washi tape. I know. It's so pretty. I, I was using a happy planner for like four or five years now. And I had no idea there were stickers. And then a few... <laughs> authors had posted like pictures of their their weekly spread so to say and I was mm -hmm. like hang on that looks like fun and so I went to Michael's and there's a whole like aisle of it and I had yeah. no idea <laughs> and now it's a problem talk about falling down a rabbit hole I right I know <laughs> what is one of your guiltless pleasures I mean obviously reading but Mm -hmm. That's an, a life necessity, so I don't even think of it as a guiltless pleasure. Um, I was thinking naps. You're a napper? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I struggled with this. Like, I was one of those people who just refused to take a nap. I felt like I had to take advantage of, I'm a day person. Yeah. Every moment of the day, I want it. Mm -hmm. And I had, like, went to, like, I was doing group therapy once upon a time, and the um, therapist that we had was like, if you're going to take a nap, take it before one o'clock and sleep no longer than like 45 minutes. So if like one o'clock came and went, I was like, oh, I guess I just have to be up now. But then I heard recently that like taking a nap is actually really healthy for you. So I have been embracing the naps. I I love them in 2021. It's it's necessary some days. And I, I'll get home from work because I, I teach high school as a day job and mm -hmm. I'm just done at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And in order to ha be able to be productive, I'm like, I just need to put my head on the corner of the couch for a second. <laughs> and for a second. Then an hour later. Yeah. yeah. But what uh, do you teach? Uh, social studies. Oh, okay. Usually oh, um, so I'm on cool. call most of the days of the week. I, I work a job share. So, okay. uh, and then what my one day a week that I'm job share. I'm actually teaching teaching psychology this year, which is which oh, wow. is new and and fun. It's fun to learn something new. But yeah, my uh, I know a lot of Canadian history from teaching social studies for 15 <laughs> yeah. years in Canada. <laughs> Who is one of your most read authors? I'm gonna go with Serena Bowen for that one. She's mm. not a category author, but she I I've been reading her books since she started her uh, um, college hockey series about six or seven years ago, maybe it was. And mm. I actually this year got to read to write a story for her World of True North series that she did. And I was like, absolutely wild because it's like, oh my gosh, I'm writing a story for someone who's like one of my writing idols. This yeah. is incredible. <laughs> so we love romance origin stories. Can you share with us how you became a romance reader? You know what? It feels like it's so long ago. It's hard to pin the pieces down of where it ex exactly started. Both my parents are huge readers. So that was always modeled for me as a kid. And I read a ton when I was younger. I started reading Babysitter's Club books when they initially mm -hmm. like came out in the mid 80s. And I would like eat them, go through them in an hour kind of deal. And mm -hmm. it was a bit of an expensive habit. But um, <laughs> the uh, so I, I was primed to become a reader for sure, having been a reader as as a kid. And then I remember specifically with a friend, her she was a big reader too. And I just started to read some of the sort of historical epic type series and even some of like the 
I'm not sure, prehistoric isn't the right word, but books that took place like 10,000 years ago and things like that with really, because that was sort of like GNAM all like was popular at the time. And so I had picked up a few of my mom's and then my friend was saying, oh, I've picked up a few of my mom's books too. And you know, they're more <laughs> like romance novels from the medieval time. And I was like, ooh, medieval time, like now we're talking. Mm-hmm. So she slid me one and I read it and then went from there. I also remember reading Outlander really pretty close after my mom had read it when it initially came out. And uh, so I was hooked on that. I went to the library a lot when I was a kid and I read Julie Garwood and Judith McNaught and Jude Devereaux and Joanna Lindsay. And I like to think of them the like the four J's of the rompocalypse. Sarah, it's like your holy trinity. <laughs> yeah. I start, I cut my teeth with Susan Wiggs, Susan Mallory and Cheryl Woods, the holy trinity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And then pretty close after that in high school, sort of mid high school, I, I actually started getting category romance from the library too. Mm-hmm. So I did, I did read category romance fairly early on too. So what was it about like being like a teenage girl and those big epic historicals? Like what mm-hmm. is it about those you think you enjoyed? Probably partly the drama of them, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're so bigger than life. And I love the historical component. I, I was really reading them for for the historical romance because I really loved history and I love to romanticize history. I mean, now reading a lot of them, looking back on them, especially as someone who studied history, you really see some of the problematic components more so. But I think there's something really universal about some of the conflicts that they deal with and that just the idea of women living in a time where their rights and freedoms were very restricted and yet they were still they still had a lot of agency and they were still passionate about life and and moving forward and and trying to sort of direct their own histories uh and in their own stories that that was really compelling i think for me has writing always been a passion of yours definitely yeah i have so many half finished stories that i wrote <laughs> when i was like 12 right <laughs> I uh, embarrassingly used to write like real person fiction about myself and famous hockey players that when I was about like, <laughs> fan fiction. Yeah. Fan fiction. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh no, I mean had had the internet existed uh, I I was I was 4 years too early. Uh, for when I was a kid, like we really started gaining access around 97, 98. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I was four years too early to be posting my, my real person fan fiction about <laughs> Vancouver Connects players online. Yeah. But I also wrote fan fiction about Julie Garwood. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Uh, After reading Castles, which was one of my favorites of hers, I I was in grade eight and my I I wrote this big, long, it was only five chapters and it never ended because my stories never did have an ending back then. But I remember submitting it as a creative writing assignment for my and my first English teacher he was just so puzzled by it and you know writing well the butler would not be that friendly with the family like that just that wouldn't have happened and uh, but he left halfway through the year and because I'd written like thousands of words of this story and you know I was 13 and felt I should be rewarded for that so I, I just wrote the next it. great Canadian novel that's right <laughs> I I ended up submitting it to the new teacher and uh, a second time because I was like this is long enough I should get double credit for this one so <laughs> and 
<laughs> she ended up making this lovely comment about, oh, you'll be the next uh, famous uh, hot romance writer. And so one of the more fun emails I ever read was being a teacher myself. I was able to figure out, I was able to remember who she was and connect mm-hmm. via or, or um, school district emails. And so I emailed her and I, I sent her, I found at one point in time, I was looking through all of my old papers and stuff like that. And I'd kept some of my short stories that I'd written. And that was one of the few that I'd kept. And I, so I screenshotted or I took a picture of, of her comment and I sent it to her and I said, Hey, guess what? I actually have three books out now with Harlequin. <laughs> oh my God. I love it. I and too. Yeah. She emailed me back and she was just so supportive and so excited. So Aww. that was really cool. Okay. So back in July of 2021, you participated in the great HEA event hosted by Rosanna Leo. Is that how you say it? Yeah, I think Rosanna, yeah. And Mm -hmm. you wrote, getting to write stories that prove the power of human connection is truly the best. At what point in your life did you realize you you wanted to write uh, stories of your own professionally? I was thinking about this one, obviously. And so I have a hard time reading anything that isn't romance. Mm -hmm. I, I... really love the fact that there is a guaranteed happily ever after at the end of a romance it it's like reading is an escape for me it's enjoyment it's pleasure there are some amazing books out there that deal with some very very complicated and messy issues and they're beautiful and they're wonderful uh, but a lot of the time it's not what i'm in a book for I, i i need that optimism and and the hope. And so when I was around 25, I, I read a Deirdre Martin hockey book because she had a she was one of the first people that I know of anyway, who who wrote uh, books about NHL players. And, and so this, like I said, it was about 2005. And when I read that, I thought, hey, I could do that because I mean, <laughs> it's easy writing a book, right? <laughs> Obviously. Uh, and I also read a few very, uh, very good special edition books. Um, uh, is it J.E. Ward under Jessica Bird? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So she had a, a the Morehouse trilogy that came out at that around that time too. Mm-hmm. And from the first is one of those books, and it's still one of my absolute favorite special editions. And so I decided I wanted to write a single title hockey romance. And I joined the local Vancouver, which it, it existed at the time. It doesn't exist anymore. But the local RWA chapter, um, realizing that, you know, I, I don't want to just write this book. I actually want to try and publish it because, look, people can actually publish books about hockey. And that one didn't go anywhere. <laughs> um, I went to a few conferences and pitched it and it got rejected. And I, I probably didn't persevere enough with it, but it also wasn't good enough as a book to to, to be published. I can see that now, obviously. So in pitching to editors at the Surrey International Writers Conference, which is a big local conference that gets in a lot of tremendous number of agents and editors every year that it's held in person. And I really was, I found the idea of writing for Harlequin a- appealing because partly because I love the books, but also not having to be agented to submit to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the submission process was a little less intimidating than than other publishers. And so I wrote a couple of category length romances and, and submitted them to, I think it was to Harlequin American actually at the time, um, which they both got rejected at that point in time. But um, that was that was how it began anyway. So in 2018, you released From Exes to Expecting, book one in your Sutter Creek, Montana series as part of the special edition line. So what was the journey like? You, you talked about a little bit of it, of submitting, but after that, how did the journey continue on? 
Yeah. So after, I think I got my last rejection from them in about 2008 or 2009. And then I actually had my two kids at that point in time, one in 2010 and one in 2013. And during that point in time, I found it very difficult to write. It, I just, I didn't have any creative energy left. My body You're was in very that new mom mode. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was really worried about it at the time, like taking that break. I, I was really concerned that an editor or an agent would look at that break and think, oh, you know, she should have worked harder or you can't take a break. You can't stop working. You can't take that time for yourself or your, for your family or for what you need, which was completely untrue. It, it was absolutely false. No mm -hmm. one at any point in time since I've been published or in my sort of second push to getting published ever even looked at that from what I can tell. Uh, I was completely... I was completely wrong thinking that anyone would uh, criticize having to take a break for personal reasons. And in 2014, after my daughter, my second daughter was born, I actually ended up training for a half marathon and because I wanted to be more active and things like that. And mm -hmm. that, I think, really cleared out the cobwebs for me. I've gone for about five runs uh, since that point <laughs> because oh after I was done my half marathon, which I did complete it and I completed it in a time that was for me, it was uh, I, I met my sort of my own personal time goal. But I, I sat down and started writing again after that point. I actually remember in my last few training runs, like thinking about a new story and, and thinking about something new to write. And and so ever since then, I've I've been focusing on writing. I, I did start writing that new book, which was, it had some Hollywood themes in it. It had some, some hockey themes in it. But I also picked up the one that got rejected by Harlequin American in 2008. And I went to the next, um, I guess it was 2015, probably. I went to the next Surrey International Writers Conference and I had a blue pencil interview. I cannot remember for the life of me which author it was with. I feel so badly for that. I, I really wish I could remember because she gave me some spectacular advice looking at my first three three pages. She looked at them when she was like, well, you need to cut them all and start like here on this last line. <laughs> wow. And, and I, I was like, oh, okay, sure. Sounds good. If that doesn't need to be there, I'll, I'll, it's gone. Uh, so I, I cut the first part of the scene and I started later in, in chapter one and I went through it and I had Tight, I tightened it and, and fixed up some things and worked more on more some more deep point of view techniques and stuff like that. And that actually is from Exus to Expecting, uh, oh, that wow. book. Uh, yeah, yeah. I ended up later that fall, I participated in PitMad on, on Twitter. Um, I, I pitched it in, de in the December PitMad event of, of 2015 and nothing happened until March of 2016, I was on vacation in Galveston, Texas. We were going to go on a cruise out of Galveston. And so we were there for a few days beforehand. And I remember specifically, we were sitting on a bridge that had like the cantilever thing to let the sailboats go through. So we were stopped waiting and my phone went off. And my Harlequ my person who is now my Harlequin editor had liked my tweet and <laughs> from three months prior. So, oh my gosh. <laughs> right? Shows you that tagging your tweets properly if you per participate in Pitmat yeah. is the way to go because that's how she found it. Uh, was was through the I guess the adult and contemporary romance uh, 
tags on or their hashtags. And so I, I very quickly emailed her and was like, I would love to submit this to you because so, like special edition is where I would want this to end up. But I'm currently on holiday. And do I'm you mind? I'm literally sitting on a bridge in Texas. Yes. <laughs> literally in Texas. And I really, as much as I would love to spend my holiday fixing, you know, fixing it up for you, somehow that doesn't seem like really the point of being on holiday. So <laughs> do you mind if I send it to you in three weeks? And she said, oh, absolutely. You know, can't wait to see it. And uh, three months later, the funny thing about this one, three months later, I was packing to go to my cabin because it was like the end of June and we were headed to the cabin on holiday. So there I am. I can remember I was in my bedroom putting things in the suitcase and I get a call from her and she's like, we want to we want to buy this book from you. And I remember like sitting down on the floor. I was just like, oh my goodness, I am so shocked right now. It was amazing. <laughs> and in yeah. both times you were literally about to go somewhere. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's how many times that has happened to me that I have been on holiday in the summer or at spring break and, and something big like that happens. Like it's, mm -hmm been such funny timing. Um, I got my email from Serena Bowen about her wanting my turnabout proposal. Uh, that happened when I was like on the ferry coming home from Quadra Island after having been at the cabin. And <laughs> you are always thing. a woman in transit, okay? And everyone <laughs> just constantly on holiday. <laughs> I'm, re I'm really not. I mean, <laughs> just apparently I need to do it more often because great yeah. things happen. Good things happen. <laughs> okay, so I have to ask how how does one train for a marathon, like a marathon, right? a half marathon? And then I can't imagine you get a lot of thinking while doing the running. But how did you train for that? Uh, slowly and carefully. I have a, a close friend who is a marathon runner, and she had done a tremendous amount of research on how to properly train for it. So she was very kind. And knowing that I had two small kids at the time, obviously, they were like four and one, and that I had limited amount of time, she just said, Hey, how many times can you get out for a run in a week? And I said, Well, probably three times. And she said, Well, what you need to do is, you know, do two shorter runs and one longer one on the weekend and ramp up with the intervals that you're doing, like start the first couple months do two or three minutes of running and one minute of walking and just slowly move up until you're doing 10 minutes of running and one minute of walking. She said, as long as you're, as long as you're currently running or doing some three short runs a week, you'll be okay to start the program. And, and she had it all like, she did it based on distance, not on time. So I, you know, at the beginning, I'd be doing like a three kilometer and then a four kilometer and then a five kilometer in a week. And I slowly, she slowly built it up so that my shorter runs were about seven to 10 kilometers each. And then the, the one on the weekend slowly built up until it was around the 20K mark that you need. Um, that's part of the reason why I haven't done it since. It, it is a time commitment, but it wasn't as much of a time commitment as I thought it was going to be. But it's definitely, it becomes like your one hobby when mm -hmm. you have all the other things in life that you need to be doing in a week. That's all pretty much you know, most of your free time is, is spent training, but oh it was cool to say I've done it. Right. But yeah. it, it's oh, for uh, sure. For sure. 
it was a, it was a definitely a positive experience and, and doing it slowly was great because it meant I didn't get injured and I was I was able to to actually complete it and I, I think I ran it in a little under three hours oh which my gosh I, I, I didn't care how fast I went I just wanted to yeah. finish it right just it get was, it done mm-hmm. yeah I mean what's uh, the first thing that you wanted after I'd be like I'd tell my husband like take me take, I need to go to McDonald's right now and get a double right? cheeseburger <laughs> You know, and and that was part of my training too. I really wasn't. I worried about hydration, or I was I was aware mm-hmm. of needing to hydrate properly mm-hmm. while I was doing it because I did have some days where I where I was just drinking water, and for the longer runs, I definitely needed more more of the electrolytes and things like that. So there were a few days I had to to learn about that. But the one nice thing about it was I really didn't have to fuss about what I was eating. I just kind of ate what mm-hmm. I felt like eating and. The running took care of the rest. The running yeah. took care of the rest. Yeah. Yeah. So for anyone who has yet to read a special edition romance, how would you describe the line to them? Special edition is is part of the home and family branch of the of the category lines. And for me as a as a reader and as a writer for them, it's a it's about the fact that these characters can be real life people. They seem like people who could be your neighbor or could be one of your relatives or one of your best friends. They're they're people you could feasibly be. And I think that's why for me it's really easier to relate to them and I can I can put myself in, in the head of the heroine or I can very easily fall in love with the hero and it's about finding hope and, and love and there's a lot of community connections and community themes in it we they did a few years back give us 5,000 extra words it was it used to be about 55,000 words and then they increased it to 60,000 words they actually increased it to 60 to 65 but then they realized that the overseas markets weren't going to be able to do the 65,000 so mm-hmm. they said stop stop just 60 just 60 <laughs> <laughs> uh, but with that extra 5,000 words, I think part of the intent was to be able to dig deeper into some of the connections that the main characters have with people, other people in their lives and with their families and with their coworkers and, and also not just, not just biological family too, but with found families, there are, there are some series where it does focus on that. And I also shouldn't say just, just hero and heroine anymore for a special edition as well. We did this last month, Rowan Parrish. Rowan Parrish. Yeah. Yeah. Rowan Parrish. Thank you. I, she uh, uh, released um, the first male male special edition which was super exciting i'm actually reading it right now so it's so good it's really good i just call it gus's book it's fantastic yeah it's it's just it's really you know it's 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 sexy but it's really sweet right like mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah not in the sense of sweet like intimacy but like just it's just like overflowing with feels yeah and it, it's lovely fuzzies. in one of your blog posts you share three unforgettable writing nuggets only write if you can't not write the swiss cheese draft and be meaner can you talk about these sure sure so these are and you know what i was thinking about it because i think i wrote that blog a few years ago and um but i think these are still three pieces of advice that really still do stick around for me. Thinking about only write if you can't not write there's sort of two pieces to that one. Like writing is hard. It, it takes discipline. It, it takes periods of time where it's not going well. And then there's periods of time where it's going exceedingly well. With that, 
you have to be prepared for for those hard times which which means that if it's just sort of a passing fancy which is also fine too right like not everybody who writes needs to turn it into a career if you just do it for fun that's mm-hmm. absolutely completely fine and but if you do want to make it into a career there are going to be times where you have to employ that that sort of self-discipline and and not feeling like you must do it feeling like it's like an inner sort of a drive like I need to be a writer and I need to do this really helps in those hard times because you can dig into the fact that no this is this is my passion this is what I feel compelled to do and the other thing too is I feel like if you if you feel like oh it's something I I can't not write I must write these characters down I think there's an element of that when you love writing that much it shows up on the page it it shows up in those characters just have that little extra spark that's perhaps hard to explain but when you read it you know like oh yeah this this book like glows and and so there's that element to it too when it comes to the swiss cheese draft in order to be the most efficient i can be like with juggling two jobs really and family stuff and things like that i I need to make sure that the time that i set down aside for writing in a week that i use it very efficiently as, as best as i can and i do find that if i were to stop and go back and fix things and make them perfect before i moved forward i would never get a book finished because i would constantly be in that re-editing process and repolishing. And so I really need to plot out my book ahead of time, write it the first time and have it be ugly and have it have major holes in it and not make sense. And then go back and fix them the second time I go through it in order to make sure that I get to the end first and then I can fix it. So I was thinking also too that that, that advice came from Elizabeth Boyle, I think it was at a at one of the Surrey Writers Conferences. She did a, she did a thing on or a talk on writing romance and this is one of the things she did. And I remember that really resonating at the time because I was having a hard time writing quickly mm-hmm. and think, oh, maybe I'll just try that. I'll just write it through and not go back, except to maybe make a note or something like that. I, I've started to, to do that as I'll, I'll go back and I'll comment in a spot like, put this here, <laughs> fix this, this needs to go here. <laughs> and so I'm not taking the time to actually fill the hole yet. It's just, but I know I've made a note for it. With being meaner, one of my weak points as an author, because we all have them, uh, is making sure my conflict is deep enough and is compelling enough and that the stakes are high enough. And so being meaner is just, to me, a really simple way. And it comes from my, I call her my writing wife. She's one of my very best friends and critique partners. And we've known each other since university. We, We met living in residence together at UBC we were neighbors and just as a complete aside but it's one of my favorite things uh she I remember her walking in and she was carrying uh, a massive like Persian rug with her like just hauling it over her shoulder with her dad <laughs> in her room and then these like brocade curtains and I remember going oh my goodness this person is amazing <laughs> I want to be friends I want friends and then we just coincidentally both are writers and so we started writing around the same time and started critiquing each other and editing for each other and and supporting each other and you know if if there's anybody I ever need to complain to or uh, get out the things you can't say in in public (laughs) uh, (laughs) it's it's she's usually my my first person and but just the fact that we just happened to meet in university instead of through writing has always mm-hmm. kind of been really cool for me. But she she uses this like 
can you be meaner? Is this the meanest thing you can do to them? Like, is this in this scene, is this thing that's happening to them the absolute worst thing that can happen in this scene? And it's a very, it's, you know, a simple mm-hmm. way to make sure that each, the conflict in each scene is compelling and driving towards the overall problem in the book rather than just have, having a scene fall flat. So it helps to increase the conflict and the tension and the stakes. Does does writing conflict get easier or more difficult with each book? I mean, as aspiring writers, Sarah and I were, were in a writing group with two of our really good friends. Um, shout out to Aaron and Nicole, if they ever <laughs> listen to this. But like conflict, our last meeting, that was something we were talking about. And we were all really struggling with it. And mm-hmm. I think for me personally, just with Sarah and I doing the podcast and hearing you all as authors talk about how important it is. I I think that for the ideas that I have, it's like, well, this needs to kind of be mapped out before you even begin. Like what are the internal conflicts and the external conflicts? Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, (laughs) I don't know. Like I can't, I'm not a mean person. So I know (laughs) like the meanest thing that you can do. I'm like, I don't know how, you know, Mm -hmm. but then you read a book and you're like, Oh my gosh, this was wonderful. And they made it seem so effortless. But when you're like looking at a blank word document and your your assignment for the week is to write conflict, mm-hmm. it is so hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And whether or not it gets easier or not, I mean, writing in general, I think does, I'm not going to say it gets easier because it, you become more versed, obviously, in how a plot arc works. So, you know, like you've got sort of a framework inside you that you can fall back on a little bit. So I think things become a little faster. You know, you're able to find the answer perhaps more quickly once you've had a lot of practice. Um, like I look at some of the authors who've written like a hundred books for Harlequin and I'm always like, wow, that's amazing. Like that you've managed to do that and that that they have so much built up experience that, that they can that they can fall on and, and work on with. But in the moment, I'm not sure. For me, I don't find it probably all that much easier because I, I still I'm like I'm like you, I I really have a tough time being mean to my characters. Um, But yeah, it, I think you become more familiar with what a conflict can be Mm -hmm. and, and you sort of learn the pattern of conflict a little bit and and the pattern of, of like the three, whatever structure you end up using the three act structure or things like that. And I don't think you need to have it before you write it it's it's fine to go in and not know it um you're gonna some books that end up being written like the one i'm working on right now i'm working on the eighth one for sutter creek and i i had to get to like the 80 percent mark before i could be like oh that's gonna be the black moment like that's gonna be the ultimate mm-hmm. conflict for then and so now i'm gonna have to go back and, and fix that um, but I just, sometimes you don't know your characters as well. When you go in and, and write it, you can have it written down on paper. You can say, well, they have a problem with this. You know, their, their, their conflict is that they feel rejected or they don't feel good enough. And here's how it connects to their backstory. And you can, you can, you can know it until you actually get into their heads and start writing it down on paper and start working with the external plot elements that you have. Sometimes, sometimes they do end up surprising you. So I, I wouldn't, if, if someone is a person who is more of a pantser and likes to sort of discover things as they go along, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. They just, they might find that more of the work comes in the revision part to 
balance everything out and make sure that they've developed that conflict that they've sort of discovered at the end. Speaking of Sutter Creek, the series now has seven books set in it. Mm -hmm. What have you found most enjoyable about writing stories set in the same small town and have you faced any challenges with it? Yeah, I, I love this town. I I created it, uh, my writing wife and I, we went on a road trip through Montana because she was writing a, a story or a series set in, in northern Washington. And I was writing, going to start writing this one in Montana. So uh, back in 2008, we went we went on a road trip and I wanted to go see Big Sky because that's roughly what Sutter Creek is is set on and, and roughly around where it is. The fact that it's turned into seven books and, and it will be nine, I do have two more contracted. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be three three trilogies. Uh, it has been like just so so fantastic, and and I mm-hmm. do love it. And wh- what's great about having it in the same small town is I can really picture it in my head what it looks like. Yeah, um, you know I, I've written so many parts of the town, and and I I do try to go back to them for myself as much as a reader, right? Like it, it makes it more of a community for me if, if if they're going back to the same locations, and so it does feel like real, like it the people are real uh, and that it always feels strange to say that because you're like, I have people in my head and, and they exist <laughs> <laughs> and they don't exist, but they do. <laughs> I, I do find though, and, and so having that sense of familiarity, I think helps me to, because special edition is such a, a community based series, be it a community in a larger city because uh, there are some some of the special edition books that have taken place in the city and or I mean obviously there are very common to have a lot of small town ones too but you have that that sense of being a tight-knit community regardless of where you are and I think making that tight-knit community is is more easy or is easier now that I have spent more time and have more books there and I can mm-hmm. be like oh hang on if, if they're taking a puppy to the vet it's going to be the vet that existed in my previous book I so it's nice to be able to to pull in past characters one thing that is a challenge for it of course is you do want to keep it fresh and you want to make sure that you're doing new things with it so for me that's why I include sort of a different micro setting for each of the three trilogies you know, the first one is is roughly more set around the mountain. Um, and I'm going to be honest about that one because I wrote it in two, I wrote it on two separate contracts. The first one was contracted separately. And then there was a 15 month gap. And then the next two, I, I signed the contract for the next two pretty, pretty soon after I was contracted for the first one. But because they were scheduled separately, they weren't scheduled as a whole. They were scheduled quite far apart from each other. And I, I think part of that also had to do with um, I was signing on with Special Edition right when they were right when Harlequin was closing the five lines that they closed, including Super Romance, yep. including Kamani. And they were honoring pre-existing contracts with other authors, I think. Oh, OK. Yeah. Is my understanding mm-hmm. of it. So they were they were shuffling some of their authors they already had in uh, between some of the lines because they did each each of the lines did did run do their own run to the end and so people were still writing for those but I think that there were a few authors who either had proposals in the works that then needed a home that wasn't going to be able to be with one of those previous lines anymore and so there was there was there were people who weren't brand new (laughs) (laughs) who needed a spot before I did which is completely Mm -hmm. fair completely fair and and then the fact that it was on two separate contracts they weren't dealt with together I also didn't have an agent at that point um, for someone to sort of manage that part of it for me Mm -hmm. and 
so there's that big gap between from excess to expecting and from a father for her child, uh, even though they're the same trilogy. And I think had I had I pitched it as an overarching set of three books and then written them all together, I I might have spun a few of the elements a little bit differently, perhaps, like because the second two books have to do with a health center and like a it's like there's a there's a spa and there's some paramedical elements to it and perhaps might have tied that in a little bit more. I I did end up sort of tying them together, but perhaps not as as tightly as as I would have had it been a one trilogy rather than on two contracts. So that trilogy itself has to do more with the mountain and the health center. And then the third trilogy, or sorry, the second trilogy is about the veterinary clinic and then the search and rescue dog facility that gets built um, connected to it. And then this, the third one that I'm working on right now is this wilderness lodge that gets turned into a wedding lodge. And with, uh, with that one, it, I had actually made a proposal, like to be completely honest, I had actually proposed something that would take place on, uh, on like a fictitious San Juan Island. Mm -hmm. And it was supposed to do with a distillery and, and whatnot. And it got, that one got rejected. It just, it didn't fit the line well enough. Oh, that would sound so cool though. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like don't hear about that. (laughs) Well, and, and, and that's why I, I, I looked at it and, and my editor was like, you know, you can maybe re- rework some of this stuff and, and propose it again. And I thought about it and I'm like, you know what? I, I don't really want to change it that significantly. Mm-hmm. I perhaps like she had mentioned that it might be more suited to like a single title type mm-hmm. idea. And I was like, you know, yeah, well, I'm just going to leave it at that. I think I, I, I'm not, I'm not, if I were to change it a whole bunch, it wouldn't be the same it wouldn't story. be the same story yeah. and yeah. when I do an island book which I do which I will because I really want to start writing on the west coast and not that I, I'll still write in Montana too but I, I just really have a picture for how I want it and I didn't want to I didn't want to change it too much so mm-hmm. and my editor was like well hey you know like just you can propose us something else for Sutter Creek we really do we really do um that really does work for us and uh, you know like readers like it and it's fantastic you know it it works so she said you know like feel free to propose propose something else in another location we're completely open to that but mm-hmm. uh, or you know to, to do something different in another location that's that's not that distillery idea or um feel free to propose something in Sutter Creek again too and I thought about it and um I I was in the I, I needed something a bit fresher for Sutter Creek. I needed it to be a little bit different. I didn't want it to be exactly the same but for people reading it and then and then for me writing it as well. And I contemplated taking the distillery and, and moving it to Sutter Creek. I because you can, you know, grow barley in Montana, that works. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> it just it wasn't resonating quite as much. And I knew that I had the characters I had plugged, I had plunked into uh, books four, five, and six, uh, the, the Halloran family. They were in there, especially Emma, who ends up being the heroine of, of book seven. And I thought, well, that seems a logical family to go off of. And so I actually ended up taking a few of the tropes that I had stuck into, or uh, through a few of the tropes that had existed in, in the coastal series that got rejected. And they were ones that I, I wanted to write those tropes and mm-hmm. regardless of regardless of where it, it ended up being like I had the thought of I wanted to write an, uh, an IUI pregnancy 
mm-hmm. and have it be a, a person who is single who wants to have kids and she ends up having uh you know going through fertility treatments to 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 get pregnant and so I wanted I wanted that one and I also wanted to write a fake engagement story I Mm because I hadn't done it yet and it is one of my favorites I love it so much fake engagements yeah (laughs) like there's just something about it and I had not written one yet I'm like okay well I have to write one so I ended up taking those tropes and figuring out uh figuring out the idea of, of this wilderness lodge and, and using the wilderness lodge as, as sort of the pivot point in this and the micro setting that would work with that. And that one got picked up. Before we move on, I want to yeah. ask, okay, in special edition, heartwarming, desire, like the mm-hmm. North, very North American centered yes. books, mm-hmm. certain locations I feel like I see a lot more than others. Mm-hmm. You see yes. tons of Texas. You see yes. a lot of Montana. Um, yes. You know, sometimes you'll see something on the East Coast. I know like Terry Wilson has her series, uh, Love Struck Vermont. And I'm like, oh, Vermont. You don't mm-hmm. read about that a lot. Is the is the location something that you all as the authors think of? Or is it kind of recommended like, hey, readers really love Montana? Because I'm just like, (laughs) I live in Texas. And I'm like, okay, I can see it being easy to create a small town in a big location Mm -hmm. like this. But just wondering, I mean, especially knowing that you're in Canada, can you write a story in a small fictional Canadian town? With special edition, it needs to be in the U.S. Um, I can't, I can't write a Canadian town. I want a small Canadian coastal town. (laughs) That's why I was like, I could put it in the San Juans because that's like, I can sneeze on the San Juans from where I am. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's almost Canada. I mean, let's be honest, people in Seattle to a large degree are almost Canadian. It's really mm-hmm. close. Mm-hmm. Um, and because there's very little difference between Vancouver and Seattle. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, you, you do need to keep it to, to my knowledge. Anyway, you need to keep it in the States, but uh, people, I, I think they, sort of pick where they want to put them like there when we have our annual sort of summits where they give us feedback on what's working with readers and what's perhaps not working quite as much you know they do always say you know, small towns obviously across the united states are really popular um big cities are also like there are there is a, a section of readers who really do love the big city stories as long as you make sure you have it in a neighborhood that is that you can feel those close ties I'm surprised more people haven't done Vermont because I, Terry's, the Picket Fences one is, is on my list of books to read for mm-hmm. sure. But the the series that I wrote for Serena Bowen is all set in Vermont. So I've spent in my head a tremendous amount of time in Vermont <laughs> lately, <laughs> both in reading everybody else's books as well as yeah. writing my own. Um, Every and... fall season, I'm mentally mm-hmm. in Vermont. <laughs> yeah. The leaves. Right. I, yeah. I lived in Ontario for eight months going to when I did my education degree. And I was like, what are these leaves turning colors? This is amazing. Aren't they beautiful. It's gorgeous. <laughs> and then the maple season that in March, we mm-hmm. you know, went to a maple festival. And I was like, this is incredible. Um, the snow in between. I was like, no, thank you. Put me back in British Columbia. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, right. Yeah. Snow? <laughs> yeah. And I. I, I Thinking of like Texas, I mean, I think like cowboys get so romanticized, right? And just that mm-hmm. like 
the ruggedness and and the 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 landscape that and and working with animals and and there's i think it taps into a lot of like um national narratives for for american readers Mm -hmm. um and so there's there's that component and then with montana i think it's kind of that wild like mountains and there's a sort of an an inherent sense of danger even though the characters aren't in danger just being in the mountains has that sort of unpredictability that provides some some drama and tension and it's just beautiful too right like Mm -hmm. these Mm -hmm. parts of the world that are so gorgeous i i know uh, michelle major's written a lot in colorado and that would be pretty similar to Mm -hmm. montana being that it's mountain set so yeah, Montana still feels like the Wild West a little bit, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but then you read mm-hmm. these charming small towns, you know, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, and one of the reasons why I picked Montana, because I knew I was going to have to do an American setting, is that for me, seeing some of the mountain resorts in Montana and also Colorado, but they're really similar to Whistler for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just having that sort of feel for it, like, you know, walk the streets, I know what it feels like. Yeah. Um, that was one of the reasons why I picked Montana. So The Twelve Dates of Christmas is the first book in this new trilogy, The Moose uh, Moosehorn Wilderness Lodge. So it's the romance between Emma and Luke. They are mm-hmm. longtime rivals who have been put in charge of the annual Twelve Days of Christmas Festival, where they clash over everything. <laughs> Their rivals to lovers relationship is an excellent reminder of how fun this trope can be in, in a holiday romance. Can you talk a bit about writing this particular trope and what you enjoy about it? So Rivals to Lovers is interesting because it's hard to write well. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. I don't, I don't do it a lot. I, I tend to write more the cinnamon roll hero, I think, anyway, from my perspective. <laughs> I really was nervous about, about doing Rivals to Lovers because I know it can be so tricky. And, and I read some Christina Lauren because they've, uh, they've written some fantastic ones like The Unhoneymooners. The Unhoneymooners. Like <laughs> oh, one of my Love favorites. That. Oh, so good. And just to sort of get a feel for what are some of the areas of conflict to bring it in, because you don't, and this was something that my editor had said going through it. She had really pointed out with Emma, that she's like, you know, you don't want to have her be like too antagonistic, right? Like, let's, let's tone her down a little bit here. Yeah. Or let's turn her down a bit over here. We, she still needs to be her like heroic and, and she still needs to be a pleasant person to be around. And <laughs> so I, that was something that I had to deal with uh, more in, in the editing process. So we, she and I, Carly and I went back and forth a few times uh, to make sure their stakes were compelling. Also, when I was creating it, one of the things that happened with, with 12 dates of Christmas is it was initially going to be a January book. So no. yeah, it was going to come out in January of 2022 and 12 dates of new years or something no, no it wasn't that was the thing it wasn't it was just gonna be the the wedding lodge component it wasn't gonna be christmas at all. oh nothing mm-hmm. okay okay a spot opened up in the november 2021 um category or the section of books or what i'm mm-hmm. using the wrong wrong word there but uh a, a spot opened up and and carly emailed me and was like do you want to write a christmas book and have it done two months early and i went oh my goodness uh i would love to write a christmas book i shout out to carly like right (laughs) i carly silver is my editor and she's fantastic i love her and i had talked to her and i was like you know i'd really like to write a christmas book at some point and i'm not sure if it's going to work in this trilogy just because the dates but just you know keep that 
keep that in your head that this is something I would like to do. She, uh, so she emailed me about this and she was like, we kind of need to know ASAP. Uh, is, are you able to switch your schedule around and, and like, would you be able to get this, this book faster? Would you, would you like to change the plot around a little bit so that it would be a Christmas book. And I was like, talk to my agent about it. And we were both like, this seems like a good opportunity. I said, what's the latest date you can give me to get this book in, right? <laughs> to the hour. <laughs> yeah. I usually, I usually take about five months to write a book just with how much time I have in a week. So mm -hmm. she said, well, we will, if you could get us to it, but get it to us by the end of April instead of the end of May. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I can make that. I can make that happen. But the, the most unreal thing with the book is once I started writing it, it came out of me faster than any book has ever come out wow. in my life. I wrote most of it in about 25 days, which for me is unreal. Is like insane. I, I do not normally do that. Like 4,000 word days are not my norm. And mm -hmm. Uh, so that was that was funny, but or and it was wonderful, and and then I like barely wrote it all for three months. So like clearly, I have a book in me every five months, and <laughs> even if it comes out fast, it's still going to be five months. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> with talking to Carly, I had to be like, okay, I need to work Christmas into this somehow, and and I mean, being at a wilderness lodge and Christmas is, is no no hardship for sure. And I can't remember how I was like, yeah, you know what would be fun would be this like 12 days of Christmas if you did a festival for each of the 12 days, which really allowed me to turn it into a little bit more like of a rom-com feel. Yeah, mm -hmm. it Having did feel like a rom-com. It did. More so than my other books. I, mm -hmm. My other ones aren't don't quite have as much of a rom-com feel to them. I mean, I think they have funny moments in them, but this one more had a funny tone overall, I think. And being able to spin the 12 days of Christmas into the events and having them be connected to the outdoors and connected to the lodge. And then you have Emma, who's very, you know, she's a businesswoman. She's not super outdoorsy. And having her need to participate in all of these events and she's she's gung-ho for it she's she's committed she's not complaining about it by any means but she's also not a natural in that environment that just added some humor without even needing to really work at it rivals i think fit well within the idea of the lodge ownership right like mm -hmm. you know they, they each want their own family legacy to be the one that is what drives the vision of the lodge forward and so naturally rivalry they needed to be rivals in that sense and but it also the fact that they've always sparked off each other from when they were teenagers uh made it it made it more of a natural fit for that that rivals to lovers and then mm -hmm. also the, the fact that there was a competition going on there mm -hmm. were opportunities to build competition in as well and so it worked for this story more so than more so than my other ones because it isn't it doesn't tend to be what I usually write. Yeah, I think that there's I think there's a little bit of a difference or maybe even a big difference between enemies to lovers and rivals to lovers. Agreed. And I mm -hmm. think while I love enemies to lovers, I really do love reading rivals to lovers a little bit more but i also think i think it's because you don't see that many of them and mm -hmm. i think that it could be it's really hard to do I, I think sometimes with rivals to lovers like i've i've read one last year that i just knew i was going to love going into it and then when i finished it i was like man the heroine was just 
petty. Like it, the hero <laughs> wasn't even really aware that they were rivals, you know? <laughs> so I, it, it seems like it's like really difficult to do, but I, the way that you did it in this book, I just think that it was, it was wonderful. And it just goes to show like how fun it can be. I think, especially in, in rom-coms, I think mm-hmm. it just lends itself so well to that. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you for, I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about Emma. Okay. Okay. Emma is an unapologetic romantic, which we loved. We love seeing heroines that know that they're romantics and don't care what anybody has to say. And at one point, Luke tells her that she romanticizes the hell out of life. Was there anything about her character that you hoped would resonate with readers? Yeah, Emma being the middle child, she's she's kind of gone through life feeling like she's not seen very much. You know, she's she's sort of lost amongst her siblings. And well, one of her siblings is her cousin, too. And so, you know, they they're sort of all the rest of them are all notorious in the family for having done other, you know, done things or they're, they're you know, they're the attention getters. And, and she sort of feels like she hasn't gotten the attention, even though she's been working really hard her whole life. So I. I I was hoping that readers would connect with her drive and her also her optimism and that even though she struggles with feeling seen in her family, that she's still attached to them. But also, I think the idea of being lost in a crowd, I think most people have felt that at some point in their life. So I think that's sort of like a universal thing that we can connect with. She also is fairly creative, likes to find solutions, which I think is compelling. And just as more of one of the sort of the secondary things about her with with her like core idea of like being romantic you know it's it's obviously completely valid not to dream of weddings as a kid and not to be a romantic person it's completely mm-hmm. fine but I know that I sure did that when I was a kid <laughs> like the idea of wearing your grandmother's wedding veil and to play mm-hmm. and stuff like that and imagining like pretending to have weddings and things like that like there are many children I think who do incorporate that into into their play and I so I think that having a character who you know that they did that I I think Mm -hmm. that there are a number of people who can relate to that and she 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 was just she was fun to write she it was it was fun to it was fun to write somebody who really had a a big goal and had some Mm -hmm fairly like noble reasons for having that goal like wanting to honor her grandmother who was so important and and going forward and um and the fact that luke had you know pretty similar goal and so they have to find a compromise and how are they how are they both going to end up feeling that their families are being honored um, without one giving giving up their vision entirely so i felt that was important One of the really sweet parts of 12 Dates of Christmas is that Emma is the troop leader for a group of brownies. Where did the idea for this come from? I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. I I really wish I could. I, I, my editor actually she said to me, she says, you know, it's really uncommon for someone who doesn't have a kid Mm-hmm. be it a sibling or just some sort of relative in brownies to actually volunteer with brownies so I came <laughs> up with the idea 
before my editor and I talked about it, and it, it likely had something to do with the first chapter, like needing her to be on the property yeah. um, gotcha. for the tree decorating. And I, so I'm, I'm sh- I imagine it was probably, well, why would she be decorating trees? Like well, she's, <laughs> she's involved with an organization that's decorating mm-hmm. one of the trees. And what could the organization be? And, and oh, yeah, it could be it could be brownies. And but then my editor said, you know, like it, she needs a reason for why she's volunteering with the brownies, which is why I brought in the, the fact that her grandmother is uh, her grandmother was volunteered with brownies when Emma was a kid. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, you know, her, her grandmother was her brownie troop leader and now she's <laughs> taking that forward. But it's some some combination thereof. Yeah. <laughs> Again, the, the book came out so fast that yeah. a lot of the things, you know, was kind of just in the moment it felt right, you know, yeah. and, mm-hmm. uh, One of our favorite quotes from the book is, whoever told you falling in love was like shopping for a mattress was wrong. (laughs) What was one of your personal favorite moments of the book? Right. So, okay. So first off, I'm really glad you like that quote. That was one of the things (laughs) I written. I wrote that into my outline, like my initial Mm -hmm. outline when I was putting forward like the new proposal for the book. Um, Actually, no, you know what? I think that existed even before it became a Christmas book because that element of of her being romantic and, and Luke questioning her on about it, that that was always there in my initial proposal so that was that was there for the get from the get-go that was one of the sort of the central themes for me that I built it around but when it comes to my personal favorite moments of the book I like a lot of the a lot of the events that they do like the you know the digging the snow shelter and going swimming in the river and things like that but I think I'm gonna go with the fly fishing scene okay I really like the fly <laughs> fishing scene because fly fishing is not really seen as romantic so like, <laughs> yeah but it can be. But it can be. <laughs> it can <yes>. be. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just it was nice to because for Luke I wanted I wanted to show him sharing something with her that mattered to him. Yeah. And so that was a natural fit. And I, yeah. I really like how that scene turned out. And that was one of the like advice pieces of advice her grandmother had shared with her. I can't remember mm-hmm. what it was word for word, but it was like find you a man who is passionate about something, including you. So yeah. it was nice to get those moments where he was sharing stuff that he was interested in. Mm-hmm. One of my friends, they she essentially like attributes her relationship to falling in love at a fishing lodge. <laughs> wow. her, her now husband is, he was like the executive chef at one of the fishing lodges up in the Haida Gwaii. And so during the summer, she was a teacher. So she'd go up there and spend a few weeks with him or a month with him during this over the course of the summer. And so <laughs> initially I, I had to, I had to tweak the book to make it more of a wilderness lodge, not a fishing lodge, because one of the editors was like, fishing lodge just isn't going to work as, as yeah. I can. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> it can be really romantic. You can fall in love at a fishing lodge. <laughs> mm-hmm. You have a story in a holiday anthology that's releasing on, releasing on October 19th called Holiday Fake Out. Can you tell us about the anthology? Yeah, you bet. Uh, I'd love to. Um, it's uh, a box set collection. So there are 22 novellas ranging from sort of 20,000 to 40,000 words from a variety of different authors. Heather Graham is one of them. Um, I know it's exciting. There's a, a number of best-selling authors in it and they're all fake date related and they're all holiday related, but not just Christmas. There is Christmas obviously, but there's Hanukkah and there's Kwanzaa. And in my book that I wrote with my writing wife, DJ Holmes, uh, she, it, we brought Yule in for one of the characters. <gasps> she celebrates Yule. So the stories go from sweet to spicy and, um, with 
the one I wrote with Dee, we wanted it to be fun and a rom-com and not just about Christmas, which is why we bought Yule in. And I really mm-hmm. finally wanted to get to write my hockey player. So one thing about setting my books in Montana and in small town Montana is it's nowhere near a city where I could bring in a hockey player um, mm. who, who actually <laughs> is playing hockey. I, I did bring it in with Luke. It's in his past. He was a college hockey player, mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> but he's not currently playing. So and and Dee, because she writes a lot of paranormal, uh, she needed a hint of magic in it. So we brought in a little little bit of magical realism. We also love writing about Vancouver. So we have Gwen mm-hmm. and she's an artist. And she's often pigeonholed as being flaky. And uh, she dares her roommate's brother that she'll get him to have fun at Christmas um, because he's trying to get her roommate to to move to a Yaletown high rise in Vancouver. And they live in this like really funky area, Vancouver Commercial Drive. And she she wants her roommate to be able to stay with her in Commercial Drive. So the dare is that if uh, if she gets to prove that he'll have fun at Christmas, that he'll back off and stop harassing well, his sister. We, we love moving. a project. We love a project in Christmas. <laughs> mm-hmm. That sounds so good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like adding a dare in, right? Like mm-hmm. similar to having the 12 dates competition. Like that's the one thing about the books I've been writing this, this year is I've, they've been more fun. In that sense, like just bringing in elements that inherently there's conflict that's built into the trope itself, which makes the book a lot of fun to write. Let's get into some writing questions. Early bird or night owl? What time of day do you feel most productive with writing? I am a night owl. Uh, I don't always, uh, but I'm not always productive at night because sometimes I'm out of energy. So I'm going to go with whatever time of day I can be alone Mm -hmm. approximately after 9 a.m., (laughs) <laughs> there's, there's no way I'm ever getting up at five in the morning to write. I'm in awe of people who can do that. <laughs> I I can't. I could barely get up at five in the morning to get out of my house if my house was on fire. Like <laughs> there are very few things. Like I will get up at five in the morning to get on a plane to go to Disneyland. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can go back up, to sleep on the plane. Sleep on the plane. Yes. I will get up at five in the morning if one of my children is sick mm-hmm. maybe if my husband was sick but I mean he's adult, <laughs> so he can kind of take care of himself yeah anyway. mm-hmm. um but I, I do find that I need to I, I I can think in the morning but it needs to be in the later morning so likely if if I'm home alone I can be pretty productive during 10 a.m to 2 p.m mm-hmm. and then if I haven't if I've had a decent day and I'm still awake I can I can also get a lot done to sort of between 8 p.m and midnight so you mentioned that you're a plotter. Are there yeah. any, like, and then the three-act structure, is there a specific way that you plot? Like, can you share with some tips and tricks with us, maybe? Yeah, I actually teach a class on it sometimes for, <laughs> for writing chapters, so it's fresh in my mind because I just did it. Um, yeah, I tend to start with, um, I can never remember how to pronounce his name. Is it Michael Haig? He does, like, the screenwriting for writers um, mm. stuff. And he has, he did a class... And, and he does it for, it's on his website too, but he does like from identity to essence and you sort of figure out the internal conflict of the character first. And so I do a combination of figuring out, thinking about what tropes are going to be in my book, what setting, uh, what are the characters and what are the sort of natural conflicts that are going to come out of those things and and then tying it into the internal journey mm-hmm. of the characters. And then I, and then I make a plot outline sort of a rough chapter by chapter guide of of what's going to be in the book and I, I and I use a I use a pretty visual structure because I like I like seeing things down on paper 
so I have a, uh, it's, it's three act structure, but it's, it's broken into four, four columns and I plot events into that. And then I use that mm-hmm. to write a synopsis because most of the time with Harlequin, once you've written a book for them once, um, sometimes they ask you to, to hand them more of, or to submit more of a finished product, but usually, um, and always with the ones that I've written for them since the very first one. Um, you just sub- get to submit three chapters and then a synopsis for the first mm-hmm. book in the trilogy. And then you just submit synopses for the second two books in the trilogy or for how many books you're pitching. Some people some people end up signing contracts for longer, for more books once they're more established. But, so I've learned how to write to a, or like, write a synopsis and then use the synopsis to write my book, which is it works for me. It, it would be challenging for some people, I imagine, who who aren't plotters. If it's a project you've already been working on, do you reread over the previous day's work before beginning? Not too much. Otherwise, I get lost in editing. Um, okay. Sometimes, sometimes I'll have to read part of a scene to sort of remind myself of where I am. Sometimes I'll leave myself a note of where I need to go. I heard Jill Shalvis once. She said she leaves like a sentence that's un like she'll leave it just cut off in the middle of a sentence just so she knows where to pick up the next day and like can automatically get right into writing. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> um, and all of the books that we love by her, just think, you know, it started know. with an unfinished sentence. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love her books too. Her, her Lucky Harbor series is one of my favorite. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolute favorites. But I, I find like, I did that the other day, not on purpose. I just needed, I just needed to walk away from my computer to go deal with something right away. And then I came back and I'm like, what was I going to say in the rest of that sentence? I cannot remember <laughs> the life of me. So it, it's a it's a balance. And usually what I'll do is, is I'll go look at my, my scene outline mm-hmm. and, and remind myself of where I am and then keep writing the scene based on having looked at the scene outline rather than getting into actually reading what I've written so that I don't. So I don't get lost in editing. Are there any necessities you need around you while writing? Tea. Mm-hmm. I usually have tea. Sometimes I'll, I'll be like really revolutionary and drink water. Like <laughs> actually hydrate myself. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I need, to, I need something to drink nearby. I, I'll have my synopsis and I'll have my writing file. My planner is usually pretty close by because I like to give myself stickers over the course of the day as rewarding myself for doing things. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> It's like I'm in grade five. It's great. It's okay. Uh, sometimes I have my headphones if the kids are being loud. Well, we know you like to write between like 10 and two if possible. Mm-hmm. Do you set daily writing goals for that time period? Yeah, I do them on the day though. I find like I, I can't, I'm not a writer who can say I'm going to write 2000 words every day. That would be absolutely defeating for me because I cannot, I can't predict um, on any given day until the day starts, what I'm going to be able to do in that day. Um, so I usually set a weekly goal and often it's something like for me, it's pretty moderate. It's just, I'll, I'll say, uh, most of the time I'll say, I'm going to do 5,000 words this week and which is a lot for some people and it's not a lot for others. <laughs> so it, it, you have to, you have to pick what works for you. And I found that's one thing with using a planner that I've been able to target better is be like, no, I reasonably know that I can get that done without causing myself too much stress and hardship. And then based on the week itself, I sort of take a look and divide it up and see what can I get done on one day versus another. Cause I'll know that I'll be able to be more efficient on, on a specific, on one specific day than another. Are there any specific programs you use, you use to write? Mostly Google Docs when I'm initially drafting, cause I can mm-hmm. use it wherever I am. Like sometimes when I'm working and I'm on call, 
um, I'll get a chunk of time in the day where I don't have anything I need to do. Um, so I can, I can do some things then, or, um, I, at lunchtime and, and that way I can work at lunch on my work computer mm-hmm. at, versus being on my home computer. Uh, I do eventually put it into word when I'm sort of doing my third pass through. Um, and just so I can see the formatting a little bit better, um, in a, in a word file. And also so I can get the accurate word count because Google docs and Microsoft word do different word counts. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I believe, I think that hmm. it's not, it's not super significant, but if you're, you know, if you can only write 60,000 words, sometimes yeah. hundred or 200 <laughs> words are going to matter. And, uh, another one that I've been using more recently, Joe McNally turned me on to it, uh, is, uh, the website called Pomodoro and hmm. it's, you can get it as an app on your phone, but I just, I just use it in my web browser and it. The theory behind it is that you can focus best for 25 minutes and then you need to take a break. So it does this timer and it gives you, you start your 25 minute period of focusing on something and then it you do your five minute break and you do that about three or four times and then you take a longer break. And I find it really effective because when it's in my web browser, I can see the running time in the tab at the top. And that way when I'm writing and I'm stuck and I'm going to go over and click on my Facebook page, I can see the timer as just a reminder. I'm like, oh, right. I have to stay focused. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't let myself get distracted. And and it's also like, oh, it's only for 10 more minutes. No big deal. Right. And so I, I was really glad she mentioned that one because I've over the last month or so I've been using it because I've been finding since school started in September, it's been a bit more challenging to be productive. So. Okay. Um, and you said it's any- Pomodoro? Yeah, Pomodoro, like a tomato. Okay. Yeah. So you find yourself stumped on a scene. Who do you call or what do you do? I usually ask myself what the character's goal is in that specific scene. I I find that when I'm personally stuck, I, I usually my character doesn't have a strong enough goal or something that they want or something that they're trying to accomplish in that scene. Often it's I'm trying to do something I want them to do within that scene, which is completely, you know, it's, it sounds funny to say it, but it's completely different for me to want them to do something than for them to want them to do something. Like, I'll be like, I need them to end up offering to share a hide to bed with somebody, which is not something I've used in a book yet. But, and that's what I want. And it, I need to know why the, why the character wants to do that like what's their goal in the scene? Probably not to share the hide to bed, to be honest, and to make sure that their goal is driving their actions. But even so, even if then I'm like, no, I know what their goal is. And even if I'm completely stuck, sometimes I'll complain to a critique partner. And sometimes I stare at the computer and sometimes I switch over to doing some promotional stuff. I like making Mm -hmm. things on Canva. So I'll, I'll flip over to Canva and do something visual and Sometimes that'll get things unstuck. Or, you know, go on Instagram. <laughs> when in doubt. When in doubt. Look at some pretty pictures. Yeah. <laughs> Always the pretty pictures. Uh, time for some backlist questions. Sure. Which book from your backlist do you remember laughing the most while writing? I'm going to say it's a toss-up between with In Service and Love. There was a great Dane in In Service of Love. And he was I, I made him or he came into existence based on my friend's Great Dane, who's sadly no longer with us. She has a new Great Dane now, but 
uh, there's something funny about writing kids. And also there were some moments with Ruth, who was the 10-year-old daughter in that book, that, mm-hmm. that made me laugh. But also there was the dynamic between Stella and Ryan and Snowbound with the sheriff. Um, there was something about his sort of like stalwart steadfastliness and her being really driven that made me laugh sometimes even if it wasn't necessarily inherently funny there was they made me laugh I haven't done a lot of rom-com like I was talking about earlier it's more moments rather than an overall book which book from your backlist was the toughest to write yeah so for this one I'm gonna go with in service and love again um not not because it was a difficult book in itself to write I love that book more than most um, I loved I loved Maggie and the fact she didn't want biological kids because mm-hmm. that's not something we see a lot in in category romance necessarily and, and that was really important to me to have to have a char- her character and and for Asher being Jewish and being bisexual I really wanted to make sure that I honored his his personal journey and his I had written his brother in Holiday by Candlelight and my reviews and my feedback on that story were very polarizing some readers really found Caleb's journey through PTSD which I actually had based off my mom and or to an extent and and a few other family members um, and then his his faith experience with Judaism um, I, I had based off a couple of friends and those journeys did resonate with with some readers, but uh, many reviewers were also disappointed that there wasn't more Hanukkah in that book, and they identified scenes or themes that were ableist in 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 some of the scenes, and and they found the portrayal harmful, which I, that was devastating because I I don't ever want to cause harm with my books. I I want them to be about hope and love, and I want them to be inclusive. And I want them to be respectful. And so after writing Holiday by Candlelight, I, I committed to, you know, trying to do as best as I can. I, I had already committed to that, but I think it was, it was eye-opening and realizing, like, I just, I need to constantly be aware of my own biases. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, need to, need to always make sure that I'm continuing to try and learn as much as I can if I'm including people's journeys in my book who aren't the same as is my own. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, mm-hmm. I think there's one thing to be brave enough to want to include characters that their walk of life isn't the same as yours, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, you could easily just write everybody that looks like you and experiences the world very similar to the way that you do. And you write this thing that's, you know, your baby, it's a vulnerable thing to write a book and then you put it out there. And once you put it out there, it's up for the readers to read and interpret as they will. So, you know, and I think absolutely admitting that, you know, saying, you know, hey, this didn't resonate with a lot of people like I was hoping it would. I think that is just so brave. And that's Mm -hmm. something that we haven't really had this type of conversation on the podcast before. Sometimes you're going to put a book out there. And that's a possibility that may happen. It Mm -hmm. may you may learn something about yourself from how it's received, I think. Definitely, definitely. And and it's, it's something to I think always have to have in your mind if you're a person who walks down a lot of roads that are privileged, right? That you're not necessarily going to be, you're not necessarily going to see the mistakes you're making. 
And, and then someone is also like talking about bravery, like someone's going to be brave about pointing them out because Mm -hmm. I know that there have been reviewers who have made very honest, you know, written very honest reviews and, and they get absolutely slammed for those reviews sometimes by other readers and it, and it can be really harmful for them. So I think that's one of the beauties of, of books is it it creates dialogues in life. Like I, I, Mm -hmm. I think about how many dialogues have occurred over, over social media channels and because of books and and because of people writing wonderful books and because of people writing books with mistakes in them or harmful things in them one thing i think i i completely i completely respect uh i completely respect people who have the conversation because it's extremely difficult of like who are we allowed to write and who are we not allowed to write? And I don't mm-hmm. think it's a matter of allowed or not allowed. I, I think it's just a matter of being sensitive. Like, am I potentially the right person to write this book? Mm-hmm. And I think in terms of category romance, I think it really is important to have characters who aren't necessarily white and heterosexual and cisgendered in the books. And then naturally, because most people write a series and most people like we only can include so many people in each of in each of our books because there's a limit to the amount of characters you can have in in a 60,000 word book and so naturally some of those characters who aren't white hat and cisgendered are potentially going to become some of your characters in the future and that's what happened with Asher for me with him being bisexual um, because at the time I don't I don't know how many bisexual characters had had been included in um as as the main character uh, in a series romance i'm not sure if it was the first by any means um but they're definitely it was it was it's still pretty rare mm-hmm. and but i had because i had created him with uh, in caleb's book and i had established him as being married to a man um i was like huh well you know what i and and he was widowed at that point because uh, that is a conversation that's had in holiday by candlelight i was like well why not uh, write a book about him, you know, um, mm-hmm. for him identifying that, you know, bisexuality is, is the correct way to, for him to explain his sexuality. I'm like, if, you know, he, he could be a hero. And, and, and so that I proposed it to my editor and they, they, uh, thankfully, I, I'm really thankful that they, they were like, yeah, absolutely. Let's go for that because everyone's, everyone deserves to see themselves on the page. I think the stuff with um, Jenny Holiday, I think it was, had, had mentioned like that, that she ends up writing about um, people of color and, and uh, because otherwise you, you know, you're going to have a, a completely white community and, and that's not reflective of, of, of anywhere, really. Mm-hmm. Tell us about one of your under the bed stories, <laughs> something you've written that will never see the light of day. <laughs> We have learned that that's under the bed is where all of the romance authors <gasps> yep. put their Everyone's books. Everyone's <laughs> got a few, right? Oh my gosh. Everyone's got a few. Probably the first one that I wrote when I was learning how to write initially in 2005. So it's, it was, oh my gosh, it ended up like there's absolutely zero conflict between the characters. It was all <laughs> external conflict. There was nothing. But the funny thing about it, so I'm going to give you a little bit of a like what it was about, just because there's there is a point. Um, so it's a teacher, and she's pregnant by her ex boyfriend, and he leaves her for Doctors Without Borders, and she meets this firefighter who's also a PhD student who also <laughs> plays guitar, and like he was just like I was like everything I ever wanted in a hero in one person. Like there was a lot right? already. Just there going was a on lot, right here. and that yeah. you know you kind of like 
writing down every word that you've ever thought of that has to all be in there. It was all very dramatic. But the funny part of it was, is that Carol Carson, who also writes for Special Edition, she recently in her Masters in Texas series, she had a swimming coach who was pregnant by her PhD boyfriend who leaves her to do research abroad. And then she falls in love with a firefighter. But they actually have internal conflict. But I was thinking about it the other day because I reread it. Um, it's one that I, it's one of the special editions that I really love. So I reread it and I'm like, hang on, there's a lot of elements in here that were like that first terrible story that I wrote. So it actually can be done properly and it can be yeah. done well because Carol managed to do it and it's a wonderful book. But I remember I was reading, I was listening to part of uh, Big Magic, I think it's called by Elizabeth Gilbert. Mm -hmm. uh, and she, she talks a lot about inspiration and she talks about the muse visiting different people and that like she believes that the muse will come in and give the exact same idea to two different people. People, and then they take it and they do entirely different things with it. So I was like, oh, man, that's totally a big magic moment. <laughs> Carol and I were visited by the same muse. And yeah. Mine is under the bed. A pregnant so the muse lady. was like, screw you. I'm gone. I'm going to go say hi to Carol over here who's actually going to write the book and make yeah. something out of it. <laughs> Tell us one of the craziest things you've Google searched for writing purposes. I think people who write paranormal and, and like <laughs> mysteries and suspense probably have far more interesting Google searches than I do. I'm going to go with, it's not really unusual, but I watched a lot of Richard Madden and James McAvoy YouTube videos when I was <laughs> trying to perfect my Scottish character's accent for Turnabout. We'll call it research. Research, we'll yeah. Research. <laughs> and uh, cause, you know the funny thing about writing a character with an accent? Mm. I mean, we all have accents, even though Canadians love to pretend we don't have an accent. We totally um, do. Yeah. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah. But uh, no, we're, we're the neutral accent. Come on. Uh, anyway, mm -hmm. Realizing like writing someone who comes from somewhere in the British Isles, be it from Scotland or, or from from England or, or Ireland is trying to find the balance of including enough slang. Yes. Without, like hammering the reader over the head with it. So that's why I was wanting to listen to people speak in interviews and things like that was to realize that, you know, honestly, for word choice, someone from the UK is almost almost everything they say is going to be identical to somebody from North America. Mm -hmm. um, there's going to be a small handful of vocabulary words that are different, but really it's, it's pretty straightforward. So and then realizing, OK, well, how do I how do I work in the fact that he sounds Scottish without using a whole bunch of Scottish vernacular? So, yeah. Mm -hmm. What's a romance you've read within the past few years that reminded you of why you love the genre? All right. I'm going to do two for this one. I'm going to go with a category romance first. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, I loved Waking Up Married by Reese Ryan. Reese Ryan! Yes. yes. Earlier this year it came out. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it was the Vegas marriage between best friends. And it was so tightly written. And it had a really rewarding HEA. And it also, because mm -hmm. it was in her Bourbon Brothers series, it, it had past characters who were in it. And the family was great. And it was like everything that needed to be in that book was in that book. And it didn't have anything extra, which I find so impressive. Because with Desire being 10,000 words less, like mm -hmm. you have to be so precise um with, with what you include in those books so that one I just thought was exceedingly well done and so rewarding at the end um because there's just something about best friends getting accidentally married that's mm -hmm. awesome and the whole <laughs> scene when they realize that they got yes. married was hilarious yes <laughs> so good so the Instagram good. yes yes 
but it's the piecing together of like how yeah, do we yeah. not remember this i was yeah. dying it's so absolutely <laughs> yeah absolutely the other one i think from the past couple of years that i read that just i i felt like immersed in it was love lettering by Clay, kate, kate claiborne mm. oh yeah oh it was gorgeous and the the heroine does like hand lettering in planners and things like that like she does like calligraphy and and annotating and stuff like that and and it was just gorgeous and it was set in new york like partly in brooklyn partly in manhattan which is a place to go visit i just love it there and uh the romance was lovely and um I didn't I didn't want to put it down and and it actually inspired me to include a lot of the artisan paper details in turnabout. I realized, "Oh, hey, you can actually include a lot of details about something that's a little bit unusual." Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it can still be a compelling read. It doesn't come off as like a an instructional manual on how to do calligraphy <laughs> or, or how to how to make artisan paper. So, yeah, I love that book. Who was your teenage celebrity crush? I'm going to go with someone a little bit, perhaps, uh, not super recognizable for anyone who's not a hockey fan, but uh, Pavel Bure. He, <laughs> he was one of the Vancouver Canucks draft picks, like, back when I was a teenager. <laughs> I wrote really terrible poetry about him. It was awful. Oh, my God. Teenage so poetry is the best. It's oh. the most honest. <laughs> Right? Oh my gosh. Yeah, I, I actually remember a person who I met at university who become my absolute best or very best friend. She uh she was <laughs> she said, "You loved Pavel Bure too." She said, "I specifically when I was in high school did a project on hyperbaric chambers and so that I could go to the Vancouver Canucks training room because they had the only hyperbaric chamber in the entirety of British Columbia at the time in hopes of meeting Pavel Bure. And uh, she didn't, but she saw his locker room and I was like, wow, see, we're meant to be. We're meant to be. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the days of teenage girlhood. Like Mm -hmm. there is nobody Mm -hmm. as determined as a teenage girl to like accomplish things sometimes like they oh man teenage girl energy is amazing yeah (laughs) (laughs) name one film you'll never stop watching ah dirty dancing i think far too young to be watching it when i was a kid but god that movie was good (laughs) oh right i think like i think back on it and like what like pretty close to it coming out i must have been nine ten yes i watched that i watched pretty woman i watched Gun, and i cocktails with tom cruise Oh my, okay, so we're of a certain age. All right. (laughs) (laughs) But like my kids have not watched any of those movies. No. Actually, no, we did show part of Top Gun to our daughter. (laughs) What were our parents thinking? Oh, Oh, the dancing in that movie. That that was the dancing for me. At the end of the day, that's all I cared about. Yeah. Absolutely. I will try to remember to leave it linked down below, but there's a YouTuber that I follow. Her name's Lena Norms, and she did an entire video on how uh, Dirty Dancing is actually like a super feminist movie. And I was like, you are Mm. absolutely right, girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Yes, it Mm -hmm. is. Yes. Absolutely. What is one hill you will wholeheartedly die on? All right. I know I'm not the first one to say this, but I'm going to go with the, that romance must have an AGA to be counted as a romance. Like it's, it's a rule. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you share with us what is coming up from you next? Yeah. Okay. So I just talked about it a little bit, but mm-hmm. um, 
12 Dates and Holiday Fake Out are both October releases, so pretty recent ones. Mm-hmm. The next up that's that I have scheduled to come out, it will be in July, uh, which will be the 8th Sutter Creek. Uh, and then the 9th one, I believe, is going to come out in December. Okay. And those ones awesome. are going to finish up that wedding lodge trilogy so it sort of goes establishing the wedding lodge building the wedding lodge using it for a wedding is roughly (laughs) the series arc for that well we are so excited about more moose horn (laughs) (laughs) it's just so fun so lastly can you share where everyone can follow you online yeah absolutely i am most active on instagram and facebook and I also do have a Pinterest account as well. I'm just, it's just Laurel Greer author, all one word at all those places. I might venture into TikTok soon once I'm <laughs> sort of done with release season here. Uh, I, I do love a lot of what I'm seeing from book talk. So I, I'm going to perhaps venture into the brave world of that. I am technically on Twitter, but it makes me feel terrible about myself and the world every time I log into <laughs> Get it. over there, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some people love it and it's their, it's their happy place. And uh, so I'm there and I'm, you know, I, I, you can contact me there. Absolutely. Um, but I do stick to the ones where I get more than 144 characters. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. <laughs> Try and yes. express my feelings because mm-hmm. I have far too many times said something and then I'll look at it and be like, nope. And I'll delete it. Glad I deleted it. Or there have been a handful of times where I've said something and I've looked at it and I've been and I've posted it and I've been like, oh, that doesn't come across wrong. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. So I, I'd say definitely Instagram and Facebook are the places I'm mm-hmm. most. Okay. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with us today and letting us pick your brain. And mm-hmm. it has just been such an honor to get to know you. And we've just been so excited for this chat. So thank you for sharing your time with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. And for listeners, make sure you check the show notes. We will have the links to where you can find and keep up with Laurel, as well as where you can get your hands on her books. Definitely go get them and keep an Mm -hmm. eye out. I mean, if you have have not ordered 12 Dates of Christmas, you absolutely need to. It's Mm -hmm. the perfect, like rom-com, sexy, small town, winter yep. i mean it's it's everything it <laughs> i have to say sarah and i gripe about this all the time there's a lot of christmas quote unquote christmas romances that yep. don't actually feel like christmas romances and this is actually one that does so mm-hmm. thank you for such a wonderful read and listeners sarah and i will chat with you all in our next episode have a lovely day everybody bye